The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight, we welcome back a familiar voice by popular demand. A voice that echoes through the hallways of alternative knowledge. A beacon of independent inquiry. Reveals in navigating the labyrinth of life's greatest mysteries. I'm referring to the indomitable Mike Wilkerson. From his early adventures in the 80s as a maverick hacker, daringly infiltrating the servers of giants such as Microsoft, to a transformative journey leading him to the sun-kissed shores of Costa Blanca, Spain. As a devoted chiropractor, Mike's life is a testament of resilience and a ceaseless quest for knowledge. His days of digital intrigue may have ended with a brief incarceration, but his spirit of defiance and thirst for understanding, the unexplored, never waned. Instead, he transformed and matured, leading him to question the unquestionables and dig beneath the surface of our reality. For the last decade or more, Mike has been instrumental in improving the world's health one spine at a time, channeling his energy into the well-being of others. But this benevolent backcracker is not just about the physical. A father or two, an avid hiker, an ardent health crusader, an artist, a budding author, and a de- dedicated mapper of cognitive, cognitive rabbit holes, Mike embodies a holistic approach to life and understanding. Mike's investigative lens, however, doesn't stop at the human body. He has carved out a niche for himself in the world of alternative research, plumbing the depths of biogeology and titanology. His focus primarily orbits around alternative history, non-standard cosmologies, gigantism, and rapid petrification, challenging the paradigm and shedding light on aspects of our world that often go unnoticed. From exploring the mysteries of the great trees to pondering the perplexities of geopolymers and melted structures, from waking up with analog, the archivist, to examining the nuances of their discernment, Mike leaves no stone unturned. His work on petrified titans and organs is a testament to his dedication and his keen interest in the heart structure and function. So if you want to explore the uncharted territories of our reality, don't go anywhere. Welcome to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To access tonight's full interview and all of our exclusive material, simply join the Veritas Plus family by clicking on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Veritas store for a range of great products, including focused life force energy. Experience the power of FLFE with a 15-day free trial today. No credit card required. We're excited to announce the launch of our brand new Veritas Plus Insider, your source for exclusive news and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you're looking to get in touch with Mel, have a guest suggestion, or would like to provide feedback, simply click on the contact button on our website. So sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's show. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And his YouTube channel is Stellium 7. Directly from Costa Blanca, Spain, I'd like to welcome Mike Wilkerson. Hello, Mike, and welcome back. How are you? Hi, Mel. I'm really good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be invited back. It was a lot of fun last time. Absolutely. And you had a lot of people saying, bring him back. There's a lot of stuff that we need to talk about again. But I was mentioning to you offline, I'd like to start with this. I know this is not your area of expertise, but I we have a mutual friend, Alex Michael, the conspiracy music guru, lives close to you. He was with me on the show last week. And he said a few things, 
And for some reason, I didn't probe too much. But I'd like to get your take on this, and maybe you have some references. But he mentioned a few things about instead of focusing so much on the South Pole, or some people call it the the ring around what we call the plain, uh, the ice walls, he says, I like to focus more on the North Pole because you have Scandinavia there, for example, with Sweden. He said, S.W. Eden, Southwest Eden, Norway, the way of the North, Finland. Fin means in Latin, the end, the end of land, and Denmark, the mark of Eden. So that prompted me to ask you, do you know anything about this? A bit. I, I've I've seen a lot of uh, videos covering these topics, and I heard um, an audiobook called "The Smoky God," which uh, is tells the story of a fisherman uh, and his son, I believe, who uh, were leaving from Norway and found a passage, kind of by accident, to these northern lands that we see on a lot of different uh, older maps. There's a Often you'll you'll find the, this. It's a four continent system that um, it's shaped kind of like a pie with with four rivers going in and out. And you know this is where our mythic tales of Hyperborea and uh, you know the the world tree of of the, the Norse mythologies, Yggdrasil. You know this it all centers around these areas, and I think it's incredibly fascinating. That's where you have you know we have the Northern Lights up there. Uh, our compasses point there. You know, come past seems to uh, kind of, you know, say something in the word uh, like come, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm more I'm far more drawn to the to the northern pole than the southern pole based on what I know about uh, who likes to go to the south. Um, yeah. And, and before we started, we were talking a little bit about the box saga, which I'm no expert on, but I've watched some documentaries on that as well. And uh, that's a fascinating story of a. Uh, uh, it's told by uh, a man named Eeyore Bach, who's no longer alive, but he was he claimed to be the final descendant of a family that traced their lineage back to the the the, the first people who originated from these central lands uh, in Hyperborea. And uh, he was Finnish, and the, he claims that that um, when the the last major cataclysm occurred that that because of the the Gulf Stream that that winds its way from the Gulf of Mexico around Florida and up into um, the it's, it's called Estherjuan, which is the the Eastern Sea, which is the sea that goes up past Gotland and then and then right up into Finland, and that these were the only sections of, of the world that were inhabitable above ground during during that time. So he he's got a very, very interesting story to tell. It was an oral tradition that was passed down to him by his mother and, and sister. And I can I can definitely recommend people look into that. Do you think there's a symbolic or literal significance to these Scandinavian countries, the names, in terms of their geographical positioning? I definitely think there could be. I mean, when when you look at these old maps, it, it seems like things have gone missing in our in our current uh, our current maps. And uh, when you look on Google Earth, which I like to do a lot, the North Pole is just showing water. And I don't know about you when I when I was a kid, I, I remember that that was all ice up there, ice. and there were people who trekked to the North Pole, you know. And now when you look on Google Earth, it's all just a bunch of water. And if you zoom in close, there's um, there's all kinds of little anomalies that you can see on Google Earth, and it it looks like a big pie. Um, you know, it's like 
it looks a lot like they kind of wrapped a, a flat surface around a ball and then they had problems with rendering. And so you, you can see the artifacts of that. The same when you go to look at the South Pole, uh, looks like the, a Pac-Man with, with these little wedges and the, you zoom in close on, on what should be the South Pole. And, uh, you're not, you're not seeing reality there. You're just, you're just seeing some, some glitch of the, of the matrix. Well, Google is part of the deep, deep state. I mean, we know that whatever we see and even my, Alex was mentioning that he was discussing an area somewhere, I forgot exactly where it was. And not even a week later, Google completely pixelated it so that people can't see that part anymore. So they're on the lookout <laughs> for people like you, Alex and me, I guess. That that happens all the time. Stuff goes missing on Google Earth. It's pretty it's pretty interesting, and I'm I'm sure they'd explain it all away with some kind of rendering error or or something, you know. But um, as we we spoke about in in our last uh, conversation, one with regards to the research that I did on the mountain Mont Go, after I'd done three or four videos on that subject, um, a certain eye and ear went missing from Google Earth. <laughs> That's what Alex was saying. Now, remember, that's exactly what he said of your research, that you were looking into the cavity of the eye, and then all of a sudden, Google Earth blocked that. Why would they yeah, do that? Why? They, did, they didn't block it entirely. I think they couldn't block it entirely, because this is a very uh, tourist region, and a lot of hikers go up to this uh, mountain, and so... You know, it's it's uh, when it's rendered in 3D, it has very high, high level of detail. And um, so... After I made the third and fourth videos covering the eye, and, or the second and third covering the eye and the ear, I was in an interview with a friend and uh, was was showing him. And as I went to zoom in on this area, just the eye and just the ear were were blurred out. Now other parts of the mountain have also been blurred out, uh, so it's not as suspicious. But uh, back then it was just just the eye and the ear. But I had used uh, Google Earth and and zoomed very in, in a very slow fashion, high definition, um, and I was and I was able to use that almost like a, as if I had drone footage. So so I was flying in from very far away and 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 zooming in on the mountain from a variety of different angles, and uh, and so I had all that footage. And then after it changed, I was able to show the before and after, and that's what I did in the in the fifth video. It's a series called unveiling a titan there's six parts to it plus a a seventh part that was uh that i filmed live up at the eye with questions and answers and went around and showed some of these different features that that seem to match up perfectly with eye socket anatomy which is pretty odd if it was just pareidolia or some you know trick of the mind we're going to get back to biogeology in a moment especially that mountain in in, in where you are but I'm thinking of, of one image that I saw. This is in Southeast Asia, I believe. You, I'm sure you have seen it. And it's this gigantic snake. And it goes around mm. a mountain. And you see the actual texture of the snake. Scales. And then you, the scales. And then you see yeah. the, the actual head of the snake. What do you make yeah. of that? Yeah, it's called the Naga, N-A-G-A. And I think the, the local myths tell the tale of some um woman who was a, a a sorceress or something and was very upset and i can't remember if she became petrified or i, I don't remember the details of the story but it's it's worth looking into because it's it's an interesting read um and there's a lot of good footage uh that you can find on on youtube of people walking around this 
And I, I don't know if this is something that, that was carved over a very, very long period of time by people that wanted to make it look that way, or, or if it just is what it appears to be, but it sure looks like a Titan snake. Uh, we're talking huge, you know, hun- hundreds of feet, uh, in length and coiling. And like you said, there's a very, detailed head and and all the scales are there and it and it just curves exactly as if a, a snake would, would curve so it's it's fascinating to look at it's definitely if, one of the the better titan examples out there if it's a petrified animal again you may have discussed this during our our last interview what could create this effect because it seems that the animals they seem alive but petrified right yeah, so we're not we're talking about really petrification that's rapid, not not something that's occurring over hundreds or thousands or millions of years because obviously if it's if if it's flesh it would start to degenerate, it would decay, it would uh, be eaten by larvae and and bacteria. So the fact that that some of these finds are so well preserved suggests that whatever happened happened very very quickly. So that gets into the this topic of of instant petrification, um, which I, I've been fascinated with now for, you know, going on four years, ever since I started to look at the mountain. Um, and obviously there's a lot of different possible explanations for how something like that could happen. I mean, you have the the biblical explanations, you have the mythological explanations from a scientific perspective, we're looking at it, you know, from very left brain and, and, you know, what can we look at in the here and now to, to prove or disprove this? I I've, I've been more interested in other kinds of explanations that have to do with things like, um, you know, volcanic activity, plasma, you know, there's, there's a lot of different, different things you can look at, but those are some of the the best explanations for, as far as I'm concerned. Going back to biogeology, any new insights that have surfaced since we last talked about this? Yeah, well, I've been looking into it a lot. I wouldn't say that I personally have made more discoveries as far as what's, you know, here around me. Um, you know, I, we we discussed the the heartstones quite a bit last time, the the research that I did into these these rocks that I the, that I began to notice that that had a reoccurring pattern that didn't make any sense based on random erosion or bumping around against other rocks or water erosion uh, because they were very, very specific and they were matching heart anatomy. And we're told that's totally impossible because hearts don't petrify. You get petrified bones and and that sort of thing. But uh, soft tissue is, is said to to be eaten long before it could, could ever petrify. Um, so it's been an odd thing because I've been kind of working backwards uh, with all of this. I don't come from a geology background. I don't. I don't have a chemistry background or or you know any of these these subjects. I've been looking at things with different eyes after seeing some fascinating theories and and then noticed different patterns. And then as I started to look into those patterns more and more, I found that wait a minute, there's way too much that's just lining up with with what initially seemed random chance and then it it doesn't it doesn't make sense as random chance anymore. So I've been trying to come up with the theories after the fact instead of having having a theory first and looking for ways of proving it. It's um yeah, it's been an interesting journey in that respect. So I've been a bit reluctant uh you know, I've had a lot of self-doubt because I don't I'm not I, I don't have 
uh, expertise in any of these disciplines. So like, who am I to be taking on a whole ology with, with these findings and trying to present something that, that most of the world would consider to be absolutely absurd. Is there any type of laboratory that could take any of the, for example, the hearts, the petrified hearts that you've, you've, you have any yeah, laboratory well, that could undertake this? Yeah. I, you know, I was, some people reached out to me, uh, a couple, two or three years ago, um, who one of them was friends with somebody who owned a laboratory that had, you know, the machinery that would be necessary to, to really do an in-depth investigation with these stones. What I was most interested in was spectroscopy because that can give you the actual breakdown of what the, the, the structure is, is made of. So if you, if you have a rock and you pulverize it, you hit it uh, with, you know, a spectroscopy machine that's going to, that's going to hit it with light. And then you can see um, it, you know, it reflects back based on what the elements are and you can determine what the elements are in the, in the sample and what percentages are there. And I thought that's a perfect way to do a, a comparison with what we know about hearts, for example. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't expect there to be a direct correlation, obviously, because one is flesh and one is stone. So, so to me, that necessitates that there's been some sort of a transmutation that's occurred and and the elements have literally gone from from one thing to another and um, one of those discoveries that i made along the way which i didn't know about until i was trying to understand the phenomenon better is that there are different examples that we we can point to of examples uh of of things where biology can transmute so there's actual transmutation of elements that occurs in biology and i gave i think the example last time of um of an egg that that a, a chicken is is eating its food and then every single day it's producing an egg and it lays this egg that has a shell that's made almost entirely of calcium well they've done experiments where they've looked at the the intake of the of the chicken and tried to determine how much calcium is in the chicken's diet and they found out that there's more calcium in the eggshell than the chicken is the chicken is consuming each day. So that's you know beyond what the chicken might need for its own calcium needs. It's producing these these eggs, you know, on a daily basis. So right off the bat, you've got an example there of of the chicken is taking in something that is then being transmuted into calcium. And there are other examples of, of people that have done studies with trees, for example, where they, they take a tree and they put it in a pot and they weigh the soil in the tree. And then they, they, they put it inside of a room. So it's only getting sunlight through the windows and it's only getting distilled water. And then over the course of several years, this tree grows and it takes on mass. Well, where's it getting that from? It's, it's transmuting light and water and creating some, it's creating you know, material in, in, in the tree. So, um, these are, these are just fascinating ideas that I came across before because I wasn't aware of this because the, the mainstream model when it comes to elements and, you know, how elements are, are born in the, in the heart of stars and the supernovas spread them out into the universe that requires something like, you know, nuclear fusion in order to create new elements. So I don't, I no longer believe the, the, uh, the mainstream model when it comes to a lot of things that have to do with physics and the age of things and how certain materials come about. When you take one of those hearts and you pulverize her, for example, and, you know, mix it with water, I'm not a biologist or a scientist. I'm just thinking out loud. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you be able to detect 
some of the composition. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.